the ruling said there's you know freedom of expression in the United States and that should not be denied to corporations and that corporations have the same rights as people uh, which if you were a corporation I could see why you would want that but I think most of us don't think corporations are people and so the idea that it was applied to corporations is let's be honest really crazy and corrupt because corporations have their interests so if you're an oil company and you have almost a trillion dollars that's a lot of ability to hypnotize people to believe that the world is not on fire right now hi i'm neil katyal and welcome to courtside a podcast about the supreme court and what it means to you I've argued 50 cases at the Supreme Court and served as the federal government's top courtroom lawyer. But I want the court to come alive for you. Each week, I discuss a single Supreme Court case with one guest, someone who's not a lawyer and who can translate the case into plain English. A reminder that all my episodes are posted over at neilcatial.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so that each episode of Courtside lands right in your email. That's neilcatial.substack.com. On my Substack each week, you'll get access as a subscriber to all sorts of information about the case. I've summarized the case in a three-pager, abridged the actual text of the decision, and provided the full decision. All of that is available to you as a paid subscriber. I'm donating all my profits to charity, but production of this thing costs quite a bit, and I'm not running any ads at all on this podcast. We are entirely listener-supported. So please do sign up at neilcatial.substack.com. My guest today is Judd Apatow, a man who truly needs no introduction. Judd is the creator and director of some of the most outstanding movies of my generation. He directed The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, This Is 40, Funny People, Trainwreck, the King of Staten Island, along with Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Judd, so sorry for your recent loss there. Judd also developed the television shows Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, Girls, Love, Crashing, and so much more. And he's just written a new book, Sicker in the Head, Interviews with Fabulous Comedians, and the money for that goes to the phenomenal charity 826, which I've had the privilege of being at with Judd. But most of all, Judd is a deeply American citizen, someone who takes seriously his need to give back to our great country. I've always been moved by him and so glad he's with us today. Welcome to the show, Judd. Happy to be here. We'll hear argument today in case 08205, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Participation in the political process is the First Amendment's most fundamental guarantee. Yet that freedom is being smothered by one of the most complicated, expensive, and incomprehensible regulatory regimes ever invented by the administrative state. Today we're talking about Citizens United versus FEC, which is a landmark Supreme Court decision from 2010 that overhauled huge swaths of our campaign finance laws. It was incredibly controversial at the time, and over the last 13 years, that controversy has only increased. And you've been an outspoken critic of the decision for more than a decade. So, Judd, before we get to the decision itself, 
I just want to set the stage a little bit. So there are lots of flashy Supreme Court decisions in the news today, guns, abortion, affirmative action. And when I suggested that we talk about Citizens United, you agreed right away, um, even though what we're going to talk about are things like independent campaign expenditures, <laughs> electioneering communications, disclosure requirements. Yeah. So why did you want to get anywhere near this? Well, this seems to be you know, one of the most important issues in our democracy, because if there's unlimited, uh, you know, money that's allowed to be spent by just the powerful, what does it do to the voices of everybody else? How are they drowned out? How are they not heard? How does it uh, influence the choices and the votes of politicians? So it seems to be just a shit show, really, when when you think about it. One question I had for you is, are there any other countries that are set up like ours where there's just this unlimited amount of cash from powerful interests involved in elections? I'm not aware of a single other country that does stuff the way we do. Now, some of it is more by norm than by regulation. But like if you take the UK, for example, you know, the campaigns for prime ministers and stuff are, you know, fractions, the tiniest of fractions in terms of donations compared to here. So this is really different. And, you know, just to set the stage of the facts a little bit. So this is a case that was decided in January of 2010. But the case really begins eight years before that in 2002, because in 2002, you had a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Washington, D.C., passing a comprehensive legislation to reduce money in politics called the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, or BICRA. And one of the most important points about that law was Section 203, which limited corporate spending during campaigns. And it said no corporation and also no labor union can release any electioneering communication within 30 days of a primary or 60 days of a general election. So basically, it's saying corporations can run ads about political candidates in the two months leading up to an election. So fast forwarding to 2008, Hillary Clinton is a leading candidate and a company called Citizens United releases a highly critical movie about her accompanied by two promotional ads to be broadcast on TV. However, this company, Citizens United, was concerned that the film violated Section 203. And so, you know, they're basically a corporation releasing ads in a movie about a political candidate in the months right before an election. So they file a preemptive lawsuit and says, say that Section 203 violates First Amendment rights. And there are two sets of oral arguments. The case actually orally argued twice in the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 2010, the Supreme Court strikes down Section 203. And there are a lot of issues in the case, but the quest, big question is, does the First Amendment apply only to individuals or does it apply to companies like Citizens United? So, Judd, here I want to turn it over to you. I know this court reasoning is very dense, but just in the simplest of terms, can you tell us how the majority goes about answering this question? Well, you're expecting me, a guy who writes dick jokes, to really explain <laughs> the law. Uh <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, like, I guess, it's not that different. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, basically for the people who are dumb like me, uh, you know, the, the, the ruling said that 
there's you know freedom of expression in the United States, and that should not be denied to corporations, and that corporations have the same rights as people. Uh, which, if you were a corporation, I could see why you would want that. Uh, but I think most of us don't think corporations are people, and so the idea that it was applied to corporations is, let's be honest, really crazy and corrupt uh, because corporations have their interests. So if you're an oil company and you have, you know, almost a trillion dollars, that's a lot of ability to hypnotize people to believe that the world is not on fire right now. And if you allow them to spend all that money to elect people who are in government uh, because someone gave them a lot of cash to get elected, well, then your interests are going to be served by your cash. And most of us don't have the money to say, I'd like to get people elected who maybe are concerned that Arizona is 110 degrees all month and maybe something bad is going on. So it, it drowns out voices and basically the money wins for the most part. And that's they supported that idea that you can't take away people's people or company's expression it's very similar to me as guns which is in america it's like no nothing is too much there you can't take away any rights from anyone so let people have hundreds of millions of guns judd i think you got it exactly right this is the supreme court an opinion by justice kennedy five to four basically saying corporations are people too and they have speech rights and your critique is to say well, corporations have their own agendas. Um, but I, I think to what Justice Kennedy would say in response to that is, well, so do individuals. They have their own agendas. You may care about voting for uh, candidates who want to get rid of guns. And some gun company wants to have, vote for candidates that are pro-gun. Um, isn't that just the marketplace of ideas? Isn't that how our system should work? Well, without those limitations, I think things tend in our country to get out of control when the NRA has a lot of money, they have a lot of ability to get people elected that support their positions. And I know there are times where, you know, we'll read that in that election, the Democrats had more money than the Republicans. This doesn't mean that it's, uh, the Republicans always have the unfair advantage or conservative ideas. I think in a lot of major elections, at the end of it, they went, the Democrats raised more money and in the same ways with dark money as Republicans did. So, you know, for me personally, I don't look at it as this hurts progressives and Democrats. I look at it like it's just completely illogical. And a world where, you know, where everyone, let's say, was allowed to donate $50,000 each in an election cycle, and that was it, and it was all transparent, it seems like that would be much more fair in a government that is based on, you know, one person, one vote, and no one should be able to beat their ideas into everyone else just because uh, they sold uh, an enormous amount of aluminum siding that year. Right. That's a great point that these restrictions could benefit Republicans sometimes or Democrats. They should be thought of as political. And just to put an exclamation point on it here, the law didn't just restrict companies from giving money before an election or supporting a particular candidate also stopped labor unions from doing that. And I take it that you don't you have the same 
views about that, that, you know, if company, you know, companies aren't people, but so too, I suppose, labor unions aren't people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our election should be about people. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Concept. And I do think in other countries, like you're saying, that is what the rules are. So we are an outlier in this philosophy. And you know, that's part of what is you know going <laughs> wrong with our government right now. You have a few entities and people who just have billions of dollars and they think that they can, I don't know, take over Twitter and yeah. control the conversation. We know that it affects people's minds if, if all you're fed is a certain point of view. We know that there are people that don't get the vaccine because their feeds are all anti-vaccine. And we know that more Republicans died than Democrats from COVID after the vaccine was created because they bought all of that information and misinformation uh, that they received. And anything we can do to not have that be how our system works, I think would benefit everybody. But it is, you know, it's it, technology is, you know, it's spinning a lot of things out of control. And one thing that it's doing is it's making certain people so rich that their ability to change the country is unfair to everybody else. People shouldn't have the ability to say, you know, I made the most money, so now you need to live the way I want you to live. Yeah. So, I think Justice Kennedy has an answer to that, and I'm curious about your reaction to it. He's saying, look, I'm part of the Supreme Court, and we're doing average Americans a big favor. The government doesn't have any authority to tell citizens what speech to ignore and what speech to listen to. Rather, the First Amendment gives people the right to have as much information as possible, and that includes the speech of corporations. It includes the speech of labor unions and everyone else. What do you think about that? I just don't think it works. I mean, we see what's happening in the country. Like right now, we're in this climate emergency, but we also know that the oil companies have more money than anybody to elect people. And so there's so much information out there that even though people are drowning and the world is on fire, way too many people are like, it's just part of a 10 million year cycle that you know they don't believe in science anymore as they're watching their states be on fire or look at what happened yeah. in Greece in California it's always on fire you know we, you know we're evacuating every couple of years but because of that that didn't used to happen and so i think that clearly it's leading to people being fed information that serves a a company or people who make a lot of money based on the fact that we're not all rising up and saying, let's go green, right? <laughs> like, why wouldn't yeah. the country now want to go green in a major way? But they don't because someone with a lot of money has found a way to convince enough people that that's not necessary. Yeah. And that to me is the greatest irony of the decision because Justice Kennedy is saying Citizens United is going to bolster democracy and strengthen free speech and reaffirm the Constitution's most foundational principles. But really, it's done the exact opposite. It's weakened democracy, corrupted public officials, and stamped out all but the strongest and wealthiest of voices. And to me, it's made a mockery of the First Amendment. 
Now, earlier you had mentioned transparency, and I think that's an important piece of the decision too, because there are other provisions at issue from the BRCA statute, the disclaimer and disclosure requirements. And basically, it's a mouthful, but it says two things. The disclaimer provision says that any corporate political ad must say so-and-so, you know, Judd Apatow, is responsible for the content of this advertising. And the disclosure provision says the names of large donors have to be disclosed to the Federal Election Commission. So Citizens United is challenging both of those two. They're saying that companies shouldn't be required to identify themselves in political ads, and they don't have to disclose their large donors. Um, and here, the court actually does, in my judgment, I suspect in yours, the right thing. It's almost unanimous. Eight of the nine justices say Citizens United is wrong. Um, Justice Kennedy says that the disclaimer and disclosure requirements are important to inform the public and create transparency. Now, Justice Thomas, of course, disagrees with that, but, uh, but eight justices do at least provide for that transparency. Citizens United, Judd, is incredibly complicated, and so I just want to briefly summarize what we've been talking about and the key takeaways. So it's important to understand the decision left totally untouched the prohibitions or restrictions on direct contributions to political campaigns. So many of you know individuals can only give a few thousand dollars to any given campaign. That's also true for corporations. And the Citizens United decision didn't change that. And likewise, the Citizens United decision didn't change the disclosure and disclaimer requirements, as we discussed. The really important change of Citizens United is that it allowed corporations to say whatever they want as long as they do so independently of political campaigns. So a corporation can't coordinate their ads with a political candidate, someone who's running for office. But if they have, say, $500 million dollars, that they want to spend on an independent political ad, like, say, a pro-life ad or a pro-gun ad or whatever, they're more than welcome to do so. And that's where, right, Judd, the money comes into politics. Well, that's where it gets crazy, because if you align yourself with a certain position on an issue, you can spend unlimited money. So if you're saying, I'm against uh, abortion, and you're allowed to spend half a billion dollars if you feel like it, well, then you have a lot of power in this country and a lot of ability to change people's minds. I mean, there's a reason why people advertise because it works. And so if you can spend 10 million on advertising versus half a million, you'll probably win. And I did read somewhere this year about a certain billionaire who was spending a billion dollars on issues and elections, one person. Let's say you were worth $60 billion and you, you, well, let's say Elon Musk, right? So, you know, Elon Musk has certain things that he wants to do. He wants self-driving cars, right? So he could support people who will give him the ability to do that. And other people say, well, those self-driving cars seem to be killing a lot of people because they haven't figured it out yet. And we should have some real regulations and we should slow this down until we know it's really, really working well before we do it. And so the people who are the richest people in the world can force certain things through. 
And so how, how does everybody feel about things that are destructive or, or dangerous being pushed through just because Elon Musk is going to make a lot of money if he can make that happen sooner than later? Yeah. And that's part of what the dissent by Justice John Paul Stevens is saying. And this, by the way, is not your typical dissent. A dissent is a disagreeing statement by a justice. They're normally very polite and erudite and short. This is the longest thing that Justice Stevens authors in 35 years on the Supreme Court. He's about 90 years old when he writes it, and he doesn't hold back. It is just a blast against the majority, calling it a wooden approach to the First Amendment, having glittering generalities, a smattering of assertions. And, you know, at one point he criticizes Justice Kennedy's majority opinion for having misleading statements of unfettered discourse, the obscure reality with its rhetorical appeal. Um, Judd, did you get a chance to look at his dissent and what'd you think? I, I did. You know, I, I, you know, I'm also fascinated by the fact that these, these opinions and dissents are getting more personal and vicious, uh, yeah. that, that they're finding ways to attack each other, the other justices through how they're responding to these. And I, you know, it's passionate because he can clearly see the future. He knows what the result of this is going to be. It's like when they decided that we didn't have to have the same rules about voting from the, the, the civil rights acts that, Hey, everything's going great. Everyone is able to vote. Let's not supervise it anymore in the way that we were. Yeah. And when that changed, suddenly, oh, uh, polling places are closing earlier. And, oh, we don't have as many machines in those areas like we used to do. And now we don't have the laws and the, and the ability to make it equitable. So I think that that passion came from any idiot would know what's going to happen if you do this, which is there's going to be a trillion dollars spent by powerful interests to get their way. And that's not how a democracy should work. I mean, I'm not like not smart about this stuff or smart generally. No, you're 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 making such a deep point, and particularly about a dissent, because these disagreement disagreeing opinions are generally written in such polite terms. But this dissent by Justice Stevens, even though he was the most polite person on the court, at least in my lifetime, um, but this is really an attack, and it's similar to. Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County, the Voting Rights Act case that you're pointing to. Both of them are like 90 years old when they write this, these dissents. They're their last major opinions. And even though both were incredibly polite people, these are sharp dissents. And I think you're right because they're, they're at the end of their lives. They're looking over the horizon and they're thinking, God, what has this court wrought? I mean, it is um, chilling to read what Justice Stevens said. And I know you attacked the Citizens United decision, you know, right when it came out. And now we're 13 years later. What has the last 13 years done to your views of Citizens United? It just feels like, you know, the, our democracy in certain situations is bought and paid for. So we have all of these shootings and shootings at schools, and those politicians will not make choices or sacrifices to save the lives of people and children. And that's because there's financial interests supporting the politicians who are willing to not do anything. 
Yeah. And issue after issue, the economy, you know, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, you know, people spend a lot of money to to win those debates. And money shouldn't be the reason why those debates are won. It should be because as a democracy, we all thought about it and made a, a choice. It shouldn't be because someone spent half a billion dollars and the other people didn't have as much money. A good example of that is the homeless. You know, the homeless don't have the money to fight for anything. So the problem is never solved because there's, as George Carlin always said, there's no money in it. There's no money in helping the homeless. And so yeah. that is a lot of how our country works. There's no money in getting rid of guns. No one gets rich for saying, let's not have automatic weapons available to everyone, or let's not have people walking around with guns when they don't, you know, have a license that they can, you know, do a, a what is that called? Um, permitless carry. Yes. Open carrier. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Who, does that, who does that serve? Really? It serves right. the gun companies because, wow, you could sell a lot of guns to the people who think it's fun to go into McDonald's with a gun. I, you know, I was watching one of the documentaries about Noam Chomsky and a lot of what he was talking about was that the point of political advertising uh, is to convince people to vote against their interests. That's what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't help any parent to have their kids terrified in school every day that someone is going to shoot up the school. So yeah. How can I use money to convince parents that it's so wrong to take away their ability to have certain guns that they're willing to ruin their children's psyches? And the statistics really bear out what you're saying. In the years since the decision, corporate money has come to dominate elections on an unimaginable scale um, because of Citizens United. So between 2008 in 2016, corporate spending in campaigns increased by a jaw-dropping 900%. And just from 2018 to 2020, total campaign spending increased by nearly $10 billion. And even more dangerous than that is the rise of these super PACs, which are allowed to accept unlimited contributions and spend inordinate sums of money on federal elections. See, super PACs are supposed to release the names of their donors under those transparency requirements I was talking about with you before, but they frequently circumvent those with dark money groups and things like that. And they just have this extraordinary influence on our elections. And sadly, that's become the norm in America. And, you know, I know you weren't the only person when Citizens United came out to express dismay with the decision. You know, President Obama famously mentioned it in the State of the Union with the justices sitting right in front of him. But among actors and directors and other prominent Hollywood voices, what was the reaction to Citizens United? Was it seen at all as a positive because of, you know, labor unions being able to give money or others? I remember when this happened, I was working with Adam McKay a lot at that time. And Adam McKay has always been a big voice uh, against Citizens United, you know, he, he he was very aware and furious about it, and understood where it was going to lead. It's you know, it's really sad because it feels like our country, you know, if it if it worked the way it's supposed to work, everyone has a vote, and we all decide what we want to do. But 
I think there are a lot of forces out there that really don't want people to have the power of their vote. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help most major companies to have voting be easy, right? So it could be a holiday the day that we vote, but we don't have that. Why wouldn't we have that? Because companies don't want people to vote because they're probably going to vote in ways a lot of times that don't necessarily serve those companies. So they make it harder to vote. And that's that's really sad because that should be all we care about. I mean, if we could vote for American Idol online, there's probably a way for all of us to safely you know, vote on our computers and have 95% voting rates. The fact that our voting rates are so small serves the corporations. I mean, if yeah. you look at our country right now, how many people are furious about all the rights that women have lost over their bodies and their healthcare decisions and young people are so upset about the way that uh, LGBTQ plus people are being treated that if more of them voted, that would all change in a very positive way. So all the work by everybody else is to figure out ways to get them not to vote. So oh, how do we get college students to not be able to vote where they're going to college? How do we yeah. you know, close the, the voting places earlier? How do we make the ID more complicated? It's all meant to remove the voices of, of normal citizens. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so this has been such a fascinating conversation about Citizens United. I want to turn a little bit just to creativity, um, because to me, there's something really distinctly accessible about your work. Um, you know, as a viewer, I can just relate and empathize with your characters in a way I can with most other films. I won't necessarily name names of those characters. Because you're a nerd but, like me? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but how do you go about creating such relatable characters? Like, what's your secret sauce? I think at some point I just realized that everybody is interesting. There was a moment <laughs> where I just thought, probably anyone I walk into on the street is worth a movie. How they deal with life, the problems they've had with their families or their jobs or their relationships. That we all want other people to be happy, to figure out how to be wiser, how to make their life function. And our failure to be able to pull it off or the obstacles to pulling it off is always very relatable and often funny. The ways we screw it up, the way we get in our own way, the way we have emotional baggage, which <laughs> makes us make terrible choices. I think that I'm trying to do work that's very relatable. I like all kinds of movies. I like big spectacle movies. But for me, just trying to get through today is enough. And so where I've connected with people in a big way, it's usually because I'm just saying, like, isn't it challenging to be married? Isn't it challenging to be a parent and have a baby and not, you know, really want to not ruin your kids? And that's really, it's not even a secret sauce. It's just what I've admired in the writing of other people, like, James Brooks or Nicole Hollisenter, Barry Levinson. I, I'm just interested in the smallest ideas, which I think are the most important ones. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they're small at all. I mean, I read one interview in which you said, look, everything I write is about the fact we're all struggling. We're all just trying to figure out how to be better. Um, to me, that's like the essence of humanity. So it's not small. It's like the largest thing imaginable. Um, you know, what is it about that kind of non-heroic, real struggle that's drawing you in? For me, I, it's probably just that I keep thinking, 
Why am I struggling? Why am I so neurotic? I'm old already. <laughs> I, you know, how come I, it's not easier? How come I'm not more comfortable? How come I'm still anxious? And that's what I'm fascinated in. And so when I see other people in similar situations or create characters having those struggles, I, I think people relate to it because I think we're all surprised that we don't feel better. You don't really meet that many people who are like, I feel great and everything is working well. And a lot of times life is working great, but we're so scared. You know, the, the former president's been indicted and, uh, you know, the, the weather is really weird and I'm on strike with two unions. I'm literally striking twice at the same time <laughs> right now. It's, you know, there's always something going on. We're always worried about the people in our families that they're doing well. Yeah. So that gives rise to my final question, um, because you really are one of the most humble and approachable people I know. And that's true, particularly by Hollywood standards. I mean, you're not obsessed with fame. You don't think you're better than the average person. You're just a very relatable and kind and compassionate person. So how do you pull that off, particularly when you're in Hollywood, which is a place that is notorious for really having the opposite of that? Like, How do you avoid Hollywood's pitfalls? I think I got very lucky because I got the opportunity to work for Gary Shandling when I was in my 20s. And most of Gary Shandling's work was about the ridiculousness of ego. And so the television show he did about a talk show host called The Larry Sanders Show, it was all about how you know a man seeking fame and power all the time was, for the most part, miserable. And I think at a very- That describes a certain man seeking power and fame. Yes, right yes. It is very, you know, Trumpian. Uh, and I think that, that it was helpful for me psychologically to be writing about that for on and off for five years, that there was so much comedy in the way that you're you know, a person seeking fame and money and self-esteem through their careers and their achievements never worked. And I think that Gary, who really struggled at times, was always trying to believe that the most important thing was to be kind to other people, to remove obstacles to love. What can I do to help people? And even though he couldn't do that all the time, it really was his goal. And I think just being around that made me realize I may not be able to achieve that even most of the time, but it should always be the bar, what I'm, what I'm trying to do. Yeah, you wrote a remarkable book about Gary, and um, you know your work is all about trying to make people's lives better, um, both on screen and the joy you bring us, but also the stances you've taken, the battles you've fought. Um, Judge, you're just a model citizen, and it's been such a privilege to have you on. Thank you very much. I, I wish I could believe the nice things you say about me. So <laughs> <laughs> A reminder that Quartzsite has no ads and is entirely listener-supported. Subscriptions are the only source of revenue, and I'm donating all profits to charity. Paid subscribers get access to all sorts of bonus material, so please stop over to the Substack website and take out a paid subscription. The music for the show was composed by the artists Dawson Hollow and Ronnie Barhadas. Production services are provided by J.E. Peterson, and Tyler Morissette at Voltage. 
This is Neil Katyal. Thank you for listening. 